welcome to Art History Happy Hour. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And this is the inaugural episode of a series we're starting called Scene, in which we will discuss the presence of art and art history in things like movies and TV. This series will be available for our Patreon subscribers, but we're making this first iteration available for free just to give you a taste of what it'll be like. And just as a reminder, if you want to become a patron and have access to future episodes of the Scene series, you can go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash arthistoryhappyhour. Uh, Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And membership that gives you access to scene episodes is $2 a month. The idea for this series was sparked by my experience watching one of my all-time favorite movies last summer, uh, and that movie is Jurassic Park. And it was only in that last viewing that I noticed an art historical reference uh, and thought it would be a fun thing for us to talk about here. But before we delve into that, I want to get a sense from Tina. What is uh, your history or experience with the movie Jurassic Park? So Jurassic Park is not my favorite movie. Um, It's not that I dislike it. I just haven't seen it in like 20, 25 years. I'm pretty sure I saw it when it came out. I was a huge um, lover of Michael Crichton books. I read every single one of them. And so I also saw, I think, pretty much all of the movie adaptations. And I was also super, super, super into dinosaurs when I was a little kid. I know that when I was in first grade, I told everyone I wanted to be a paleontologist. I think there were a lot of movies like back then on TV for kids about dinosaurs. And there was also um, like there was like the land before time. And, you know, there was just a lot of dinosaurs going around. So um, weird ass show dinosaurs that was on TGI Fridays. Remember that? The very weird. Yes, I do. Um, mm-hmm. The very, very weird show dinosaurs. We're really dating ourselves now. No. Um, I'm but, a baby. Yeah, so, I'm a baby. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, I was really into dinosaurs, then really into Michael Crichton, saw the movie, have not seen it since, but of course I'm like very familiar with like the memes that have arisen out of that film. Uh, one of my favorites being one that I'm sure we will return to momentarily. Um, your scientists were so busy wondering if they could, that they didn't stop and think whether or not they should. Like as somebody who is actively in the space of art and technology, I feel like this is a very popular refrain, (laughs) like One could use this very same meme to describe uh, the emergence of NFTs, for example. Mm, Spoiler! Um, Spoiler alert. So yeah, it was was fun actually to have you send me the clip of the particular scene you're talking about where you spied this work of art in the background because, again, I have not seen Jurassic Park in like 20, 25 years, and I'm sort of amazed that you were able to identify it lurking there in the background. Well, and that's the funny thing. When, When I spotted this it led to a very strong feeling of self-worth. It's like, this is one of my proudest moments as an art historian, uh, finding this little detail. But since then, I've, I've thought about it some more, and I'm like, I mentally calculated the number of times I've seen Jurassic Park, and I think a very conservative estimate is probably 30. It may be upwards of, like, 50. Um, so... There's a, the flip side of my pride in, in, in spotting this detail is then the embarrassment that it took me. What I would say is an embarrassingly long time to, uh, to find that detail, considering how many times I've seen the film. 
we've been friends for a very long time now. And it literally just occurred to me that yet another one of the, um, the ways that we are sort of like diametrically opposed to each other. Like we, you know, we have this whole text on our website about how like we're Midwest versus Miami rock versus techno beer versus cocktails. You are the kind of person who has like comfort media that you just consume over and over and over again. And for me, I'm like, there are so many movies to see. I've seen that one. Like, I can't go back and watch it again because I have to go see another one. Like, I need to see all of the movies and I can't waste that time, like, on something I've already seen. Like, I never reread books. I never rewatch movies. I never go back and watch television shows I've already watched. Like, I'm a one and done. Like, I have to move on or I'll never make it through all of culture before I die, which apparently is my goal. No, I get that. And I I mean, I... I don't think these kinds of statements are usually that helpful, but I've thought a lot about the kind of like, there are two kinds of people and how I I summarize it in my own head is sort of like, you have one movie that you can watch before you die or one book you can read before you die. And there's like the Desmond Hume character from Lost, who's like, I'm saving this one Charles Dickens book, so it's the the last thing I read is this one Charles Dickens book. It's the one I haven't read yet. Uh, or you're me, who's like, no, I'm going to read Lord of the Rings for the 50th time. That is the last book I want to read before I die because it is my favorite book, you know. Um, obviously, there are more nuances in people's experience of culture, but yes, I am firmly in the, I would rewatch a movie or rewatch a book bef- or reread a book before reading something new or watching something new i'm just thinking about like how this intersects with how we experience works of art i've been seeing so many people recently talk about slow looking and about slow art and citing uh you know that essay by jennifer roberts that i also cite all the time when i see people having this conversation but i've even now seen it turn up in other essays that people are writing um, about slow art this this essay that jennifer roberts who is my undergraduate advisor about how you know, when she teaches art history to undergrads, she demands that everyone spends, you know, a minimum of three hours of looking at the work of art that they're writing about for any term paper. And, you know, something that you and I, I think, have talked about before is to sort of emphasize that for so many of these historical works of art, not just historical works of art, but really all works of art, when we're teaching students, you know, we sometimes get pushback or skepticism and they say, well, it can't possibly be that complicated. You know, you must be reading too much into it. How do we know you're not just making this up? I can't believe they really would have thought that hard about this. And it's like, well, you have to understand that these are objects that were intended to be lived with, which meant that they were intended to be looked at every day. And so they were intended, or there was a, there was a necessity, there was a mandate from the patron that they would be so interesting, that they would be filled with so much, um, either so much visual detail, or they would be so conceptually rich, or they would reference so many different kinds of ideas and texts that one could come back to the same work of art, you know, hanging in one's personal chapel every day, for example, and continually find something new to delight in. Um, You know, in the age before mass entertainment, you know, your entertainment was that one painting, which you have already seen every day for the last 365 days. But guess what? Now you're going to look at it again. So, um, so I will say that this, this rule for me doesn't apply when it's about works of art, that there are certain works of art that, um, I guess, I hate the term masterpiece, but in a sense, what makes a masterpiece is that it is kind of, inexhaustible and that every time you go back to it you you realize that you see the work anew partly because you yourself have changed because you are not the same person that you were when you saw it last time and that the work of art is is complex enough that it can speak to you now whoever you were now in a different way than it did when you were the person you were before in a weird way it's almost like Jurassic Park is that masterpiece for you right (laughs) I'm sure that now when you watch it 
you are seeing it, you know, through different eyes and that movie means something to you different now than it did back then. If only because in part it's it's now seen through the layer of nostalgia that when you watch it now you're also, you know, remembering and it, and um, sort of reliving all of the previous viewings that you've had and the people that you've watched it with and the apartments you were in when you watched it and things like that. Actually, yes, and I have one more brief side note um, to bring up about that and, and why Jurassic Park is so such a vital part of my life. Um, my now husband, when we sort of went away for our first you know, vacation together, we were at a Kmart and I was looking through a bin of DVDs and pulled out a copy of Jurassic Park. I don't know why I didn't own it already because it was one of my favorite movies. I, I think I had it taped off TV so I didn't feel like I needed it, but I pulled it out of the bin and Brian grabs it out of my hand. I was planning to buy it, and he yanked it out of my hand and purchased it for himself. And I, it, it, we had been dating for about a month at that point, but I feel like that is a very strong indication of the, you know, the nature of our relationship moving forward. So now we have a, a pretty major DVD and Blu-ray co- collection, and that is one of a handful of movies where you, where you have both the DVD and Blu-ray copies. Like, I will never get rid of the DVD copy because of that memory with it, even though we now have a Blu-ray copy of it. Um, another one is The Rock, because our, our DVD copy of The Rock we actually bought on Alcatraz, so there's no way I'm getting rid of that. <laughs> well, I like to I like to think of that story as indicating the fact that, you know, Brian was simply trying to show his enthusiasm um, and that he was really buying it for you, plural, or no, Sarah's no. shaking her head at me. No, he was really just buying it for himself. That story doesn't make Brian sound like such a great guy, but I promise everybody he is. He's actually a wonderful person who loves Sarah very much. Yeah, yeah. So jumping into Jurassic Park, the moment that we're focusing on here is, I would say, sort of at the end of, of Act 2. This is the moment where... Ellie Sattler and John Hammond are in the restaurant. John Hammond's eating a bunch of leftover ice cream. Ellie Sattler is the Laura Dern character, for those of you like me who have not seen Jurassic Park in 25 years. Thank you. I have no idea who plays John Hammond, sorry. He's in Attenborough, and I meant to clarify in my own mind. I always get Richard and John mixed up. Which, Which one is John Hammond and which one is is uh, the TV presenter. Anyway, um, so this is when John Hammond starts talking about one of his first attractions and this flea circus. And to me, it functions as kind of a a counterpart to the earlier scene that Tina alluded to earlier. The, the, you know, your scientists were too busy trying to to figure out if they, if they could to stop and think of whether or not they should. And this is, this is kind of the follow-up to that. And at the very end of the scene, so we were in the restaurant, and when it's at the kind of elevated perspective where you see Hammond face on, and it's sort of behind Ellie, you can see that there's this mural with dinosaurs, but it's only at the very end of that scene that it zoom, it's zoomed out enough that you can see the, the majority of the mural. And right on the upper right side of the mural are these details that are unmistakably taken from the painting Guernica by Pablo Picasso, which if you're interested, we talk about very briefly in the last episode we recorded in our previous iteration of the podcast um, on fascist aesthetics. And just to set the scene a little bit, so this conversation is unfolding in a a kind of cafeteria or like banquet hall or something. I don't know. I don't remember the movie. A restaurant. Okay. Yeah. 
so, you know, he's sat down to eat and Laura Dern comes in to talk to him. And so they're sitting at this table. And so it's this like restaurant environment, but there's a painted mural on the wall, which you would find at like a, you know, a, a restaurant in a resort at a, you know, um, theme park uh, or something. Theme park or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, the girl from Florida should really know the word for theme park. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, so it's that kind of painted mural, but it's like, really amazing to think about the sort of frisson, the awkwardness of, of designing a mural for um, a, a restaurant environment and like a family-friendly destination that is based off of Picasso's Guernica, which is one of the most horrific images in 20th century art, um, uh, one of the most important examples of um, anti-war and humanistic propaganda. We'll get into sort of why we think the set designers specifically chose this painting to reference. Um, I have no idea why the theme park itself would reference it. Um, I, you know, I don't think there's a, a good reason for that. I think it's really just the set designers trying to tell us a story about Jurassic Park itself through art. Uh, but before we do that, just real quick, a kind of a visual description. So as Sarah mentioned, um, there's um, clear reference on the right to to this painting Guernica. Overall, the painting, just like Guernica, is in um, uh, gray colors. It's a grisaille painting. It's the French term, so it's sort of all grays, black and white. It's like all shadow. Um, there's no color, and it is extremely large, so um, hard to say exact measurements, but, you know. Um, on the scale it, of Guernica, probably. On the scale of Guernica, maybe a little bit bigger, but, um, you know, the one of the important things about Guernica is that it is this huge painting that is uh, sort of like mural sized. And that's significant because it implies that it is a kind of history painting. So history painting, Sarah and I talk about this a lot, but they are, um, you know, great paintings of great men usually doing great things. So, you know, a, a king getting crowned or Jesus at the Last Supper or um, a general at an important battle. And so by making a painting of Guernica at the scale of history painting, Picasso was elevating this I don't want to say unremarkable as a very newsworthy story, but, you know, basically it's not great people doing great things. It was an anonymous sort of group of Nazis who bombed the very poor Basque town of Guernica um, with the support of General Franco's fascist government. So it's really just a story of some like anonymous soldiers bombing a bunch of anonymous townspeople basically these are not the great you know nobody was involved in this who was sort of like a great name that we would recognize from our history textbooks but um picasso is saying that no we should absolutely devote our attention we should think about this as a very important and pivotal moment even though no like bold-faced names were involved um and because basically this town was entirely massacred again it was just using these people in Guernica as kind of target practice um, of the many morally bankrupt um, crimes against humanity that were perpetrated in World War II. Um, this is just yet another one of them. And particularly egregious because Guernica was a target in part because it was a hotbed of anti-Franco activity, except that the men who were fighting against Franco in the Spanish Civil War at this time were actually not in Guernica. So it was mostly women and children who were massacred in this bombing. So um, if you have Sarah's eagle eyes, you um, might notice that the detail that Picasso includes on the right side of his painting that shows an individual with um, their arms raised to the sky, 
with their mouth open, sort of screaming in terror, and no doubt as they sort of watch this hellfire rain down from the skies. Um, that's echoed um, in this, the, the, the painting in Jurassic Park. There's um, a dinosaur with kind of hands almost, like there's five sort of digits that are raised up to the sky um, and the dinosaur's mouth is sort of raised up uh, again towards the sky and sort of open, uh, I, I think, um, and screaming. Another detail that you see repeated is there is a kind of ghostly head that is flying in from the right um, towards the center of the painting and again has its mouth open as if, um, you know, letting out some intense emotion. And that also, um, like that exact same head actually appears in um, the mural in Jurassic Park, which is kind of strange because most of the figures in this mural figures, <laughs> most of the animals in this mural are in fact dinosaurs painted in a kind of you know, um, naturalistic representational style, but then you have the ghostly head and then you have some cubist style hands. So there's like sort of, it's almost like, um, one it's a of those, mashup. Yeah. It's like a mashup. I want to say almost like one of those highlights games or something where it's like, you know, you just are hunting for the details, um, that yep. are sort of amiss. Um, so there's, yeah. So these little cubist elements there. When you get more towards the center of the painting, in Picasso's version, um, at the very top of the painting, there is an oval that inside of it has um, an electric light bulb, and then there's sort of rays shooting out of it that represent light, but because the shape is an oval, it, it also looks sort of like an eye um, with eyelashes coming out of it. Um, and so this brings up the idea of the all-seeing eye in the sky and the idea of some type of transcendent power. But, you know, the, the classic art historical interpretation is that this light bulb in the sky represents technological power, that this is um, the technological power represented by the Nazi planes coming in from the distance, coming in through the sky and then raining down on this town um, their advanced weaponry. And there's an important detail where there's an arm, so the ghostly head, um, is probably attached to this arm that is reaching out with a candle and holding a candle up to this sort of all-seeing technological eye in the sky. And so this represents the idea that the, the Basque people, you know, did not have the same technology that the Nazis did, that they were essentially defenseless, that they, you know, were not, you know, it wasn't a fair fight. And um, the another sort of sign of that is that in the lower foreground of Picasso's painting, there is a man who is lying on the ground who has a, bo a broken sword in his hand. So it's basically representing that the people of Guernica brought candlelight and swords to a bomb fight. The last detail I want to bring up, um, and this was one that I, I actually only made the connection watching the movie last night in preparation for this recording, which is the kind of focal point of the mural when you're looking at it in the scene is this big triceratops, um, which is larger than all of the other figures around it. It is very bold, it's very central, and it kind of functions as a, as a callback to an earlier moment in the film where you see a tranquilized triceratops. And although this isn't a detail that stylistically connects as readily to Picasso's Guernica, I think there is an important connection here. You know, it is done in that more kind of naturalistic style versus the cubist style that we see in the details Tina just um, talked about. But two important details in Guernica in the painting that we can connect this Triceratops to are 
the two animal figures that are very present in that painting. One is at the very center, which is this horse that is in a kind of contorted bodily position, and it seems to be overlapping with these terrified human forms, um, maybe sort of trampling the body with the with the broken sword that Tina pointed out. So that's one animal. And then um, to the left is a bull. The bull is a is a is an animal that appears in a lot of Picasso's works, both in the years leading up to this painting and afterwards. It has important historical um, resonances with Spain. It also has kind of connections to surrealism that I won't get into, but we can kind of think of that triceratops as a merging of those two forms. I mean, with the bull, you've got the two horns, like the triceratops has on the top of its head, and then the horse at the center of Guernica has this kind of, I mean, I'm never quite sure what it is, if it is just like the tongue that's pointy, or... Um, or it's like a spike actually going through the horse's head. But in any case, it is I mean, kind I think of like, that's the ambiguity is sort of the point right. for Picasso. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And it's kind of like that, the horn that's on the, that juts out from the Triceratops nose. And the Triceratops itself, I mean, the, the mouth of the Triceratops is also sort of cracked open. Um, and if one can read emotion into um, a Triceratops face, I would say the Triceratops appears somewhat startled. Um, not quite as agitated as the horse, but sort of similarly startled. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of emotional tenor, tenor, like, that's a point in Jurassic Park, like, when they encounter this Triceratops and, like, Ellie starts sobbing because, like, she's so overwhelmed with emotion. Like, that part, st- like, I cried watching that last night. Like, the Triceratops is a very emotive animal in Jurassic Park, uh, including at at this point. So now to, to sort of wrap up, we're going to come back to the question that was posed earlier, which is why would um, the person who is responsible for the set design for this particular scene include a reference to this painting? And there's sort of two ways that we can think about answering that question. The first is that, you know, Guernica is the scene of a massacre. And similarly, um, I don't want to give you know anything away, spoiler alert, but um, similarly, you know, Jurassic Park will end as a kind of tragedy with a lot of people and animals losing their lives. And um, I don't want to be glib at all. These are obviously fictitious characters, and I don't mean to be disrespectful by comparing the people who lost their lives in Guernica to some protagonists in a Hollywood blockbuster film. But I think that what the set designer was trying to do was to sort of foreshadow the fact that this film will end in a kind of massacre or a kind of tragedy. And then the second answer as to why they would choose this painting in particular is because ultimately the reason for this tragedy, or maybe not the reason, because the reason is human nature and the Nazis you know, taking their power grab, but what enables this tragedy to happen is the misuse of technology. And we see that happening in Guernica, that it's precisely the, you know, the Nazis developing their um, aerial bombing techniques that is the sort of immediate cause for the the massacre at Guernica. And technology here is also the problem in Jurassic Park. Yeah, and this is a persistent question throughout Jurassic Park, and that is frequently brought up particularly by Dr. Ian Malcolm, the character played by Jeff Goldblum, this question of, well, we can do these things with science and technology, but should we? Is it something that should actually be pursued because we see so often cases where things like this are pursued without due consideration for the possible consequences. The consequence in the case of Jurassic Park 
is tragedy and and death and destruction and the same could certainly be said in the lineage leading up to the events of, of Guernica and that's kind of a persistent question also in the history of what we call modernity from broadly speaking the enlightenment to the the present this idea that progress will inevitably lead to better things for everyone better life for humanity and artists and thinkers and writers have constantly throughout the history of modernity push back against that idea um, through examples like like what we see in Jurassic Park or like in the 18th century with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein where we see the dire consequences of progress or science for their own sake. So hopefully you found this little dive into our historical references in Jurassic Park entertaining. If you'd like to hear more scene episodes in the future, make sure to become a member through Patreon and our Patreon page is uh, patreon.com slash arthistoryhappyhour. As always, please visit our website, www.arthistoryhappyhour.com, and there you'll find our episode blog, which includes images and links to materials discussed in our episodes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at arthistoryhour at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistoryhappyhour and on Twitter and Instagram as at arthistoryhour. Hour.